Greetings, amigops, and top teners everywhere. Welcome back to another edition of Top 10 with Kyle and Mike. I am your co-host, Kyle. Opposite me today, as he is every week, is your lovely, completely clean-shaven co-host, Michael. This week, as we do every week, we will be dissecting a top 10 list. This week, Mike has brought that list to the table. I don't know what it is. It could be anything under the sun. By the end of this episode, after we have vigorously debated, we will have arrived at a definitive top 10 version of this list. Mike, what are we doing? All right, K-Dog, we are having another edition of Michael's Reading Corner. Oh, baby. We are going to talk, we're going to talk about some books. Before I tell you the exact topic, one major change is that this time I did not bring all of the books down from my bookshelf, which has proven to be a pain in the ass. <laughs> both during setup and cleanup and has really not contributed much to the episodes (laughs) (laughs) it's it's just sort of fun like i have a good time taking the books down but it's just a real pain in the ass i will note however that the same rules to my usual reading corners do apply here which is that the books have to be in my library they just don't happen to be pulled down for my bookshelf this time. So if I looked at your bookshelf right now, a live feed onto it, I would see all the books we are talking about, but I would see them on said shelf. Yes, unless I've loaned a copy out to somebody, which is always possible. I think I've actually given all of your book backs for once. Books back for once. I think I think you're in I think you're in a good place right now. Yeah. I, there's definitely some oh, people wait. out there who are on my shit list. That's a lie. I have several of your books on my mantle. I I'll get them. You bastard. See, I didn't even know. I was willing to let it go. Yeah. At any rate, we are going to be talking about readable old books. Ooh. So this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart because I hate, and I've, I've given this rant before. I'll get, I don't need to get on my soapbox. I hate nothing more than school courses that force people to read books that they don't want to read. Yeah. Are not going to read and will take nothing from. I hate that. That bothers me so deeply. I won't get into specific examples because they will probably come up. Yeah. But there are books that you were assigned in 10th grade that you were not ready for, not interested in, and were not provided proper context to read. Like, th- just tons of them. Yeah. So I think because of that, a lot of us have a really bad impression of books that were written before a certain time period. We think they're boring. We don't like them. They're inaccessible, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's true in a lot of cases. Times change. People's interests change. Language, as much as anything, changes. One thing I will point out that really changes is the way books are laid out, like chapter length, mm. like parts. You know, is it written in part one, part two, volumes? A lot of books back in the day were published in serials. So you didn't actually have to look at this huge book. You read it on a weekly basis. So a lot of things change about people's tastes. So there's no, I'm not going to pretend that all old books are readable today, but there are some old books that might surprise you with how readable they are. I'm, I'm super into this. One of my new things to do is just like, I like to alternate between something a little more modern and something that's considered a classic because I feel like there are a ton of holes in my literary kind of collection where things are considered classics, but I guess this isn't necessarily classic books right it just 
are we setting like a, a year? Like it has to be published before a certain year to fit on your list? So this is an interesting question that I, I was putting the list together and I was trying to decide what the cutoff was. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to be learned about the way literature has changed and probably also just about my experiences with reading based on kind of how I did this. I originally was going to do pre-World War II, but there's a lot of very modern-seeming literature that occurs kind of around World War II that I think is too similar to modern-day literature to to really kind of cut it off. Mm-hmm. Same with World War One. I. I was like, all right, well, World War One, that's actually a pretty good cutoff. But there's a lot of stuff that came out. Like, The Great Gatsby is a good example. The Great Gatsby came out, I think it was 19... Oh, boy, I had it written. 1925. That's a very modern novel in terms of its structure, in terms of yeah. the plot. Like, it, that's very modern. And so I think... I think you kind of, for me, to get at what I was trying to get at, I wanted to go a little before these novels and and works of literature started to feel really modern. So I cut it off at 1900. So it has to be pre-1900. Okay. Which I think is a good cutoff. There's some, there's some books on this list that are starting to feel a lot like the books we read today. But I think that that's a, a clean point to cut off. The other thing, the other thing that I wanted to point out is I tried to stick with, um, novel length books um but there's yeah. a lot of really good short literature especially that came out before 1900 some of which i know you've enjoyed because i know you're a big fan of short stories i tried to stick with novel length works i also noticed every single one of the books i have on this list actually came out in the 1800s which is interesting um i think probably because the 1800s is around the time when the modern novel yeah kind of started taking form in the way it is now there's there's plenty of books that have come out before then that would be considered novel but this is this is a time when it became a little more popularized and so i think part of why books written then might still translate to now so that's basically what we're looking at here is novels written before 1900 um, that have at least been translated into english i love it i think this is gonna be a blast yeah this is a fun one Shall we? Yeah, let's let's get going. Okay. So number ten is Great Expectations, mm-hmm. published in eighteen sixty one by the guy, Charles Dickens. Yep. So this one is about a boy named Pip, Philip Pirrip, uh nicknamed Pip, who is an orphan, who is patronized by a mystery person with the order to become a gentleman. So basically, this is just an orphaned kid in England who has a mysterious person who's paying for him to become a gentleman and follows him as he goes from poor orphan child to well-to-do young man in society. It's a really pretty classic story. I think most people have probably heard of it. Everybody has heard of Charles Dickens. (laughs) The dick. And... The Dick. There's a lot of Charles Dickens that's like shockingly readable, uh, but Great Expectations is my favorite. It's funny. Uh, it's sad. It's very human. The thing that, that Charles Dickens is remembered for is how human he is in his writing. We've both shared our love for A Christmas Carol. I think Great Expectations is a probably a slightly snootier, certainly longer echo of a lot of the themes that a Christmas Carol does really nicely. Yeah, I, I've not read this one. It should be high on my list. I, my, I read, I reread Christmas Carol this Christmas and was mm-hmm. stunned at how 
like conversationally yes. funny he is. Mm-hmm. The for those of you who have not read it, it starts off with saying that Scrooge's partner Marley was dead as a doornail. And then he kind of wonders aloud, like, why the doornail is considered to be the deadest of all nails, or parts of a door, for that matter. It's <laughs> it's extremely pleasant to read, and I was kind of taken yep. aback by how ease, how modern it felt and how conversational it was. So if there's even a trace of that in Great Expectations, it would definitely fit squarely on this list. It is, and I think a lot of contemporary authors and critics thought that Dickens was kind of a populist bum which is hilarious which is very funny because reading it now if you were to say like at a party like ooh my favorite author is charles dickens you sound like an asshole yeah yeah but in his time (laughs) he was considered like an author for the people yeah kind of families would read yeah families would read charles dickens together and you could read it to your children because it is contemplating silly funny things like dead as a doornail while also dealing with more adult themes but he's a really beautiful just like easy to digest writer and great expectations is I think my favorite and probably one of his most accessible books. Yeah. I'm going to have to read that one for sure. Yeah. All right. So number nine is one that most people probably had to read in high school. Uh, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn published in 1885 by Mark Twain. So this one just follows the young Huckleberry Finn, as he adventures along the Mississippi River with his black companion, Jim. And basically, you just kind of get a tour of, I think it's, I think it's slightly pre-Civil War American South and I guess sort of Midwest. Basically, this is just the story of a young boy kind of bouncing from place to place and running into people and having a series of misadventures. And revealing a lot about American society at the time. Mark Twain is a laugh out loud hilarious writer. A lot like Dickens. It is interesting how much humor translates over time. Like there's certain sight gags and things that are still funny. It's definitely a good, uh, I think these, these authors are good endorsements of the policy not to make jokes about Twitter because a Twitter joke will not translate in a hundred years, but or maybe not five years. <laughs> Yeah, but the jokes in these stories do translate. So, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is, it's wise, it's well-written, it's funny, it's shocking. It's very shocking, in fact. Um, and I think, I'm sure, the reason Mark Twain wrote a story about race in America through the, through the story of a child is because it's all the more shocking for that. It really works. Like, it's shocking how well this story works today. Yeah, I, so I read this in, high school and i enjoyed it enough that i just read tom sawyer for giggles and love them both i'd be curious to see how much more i would appreciate it now with a little bit more time under my belt yeah but it's it's fun because i think more so than a lot of other books that you read in high school like it's it's not really oppressive at any time. Like some of the books that I really enjoyed reading in high school had really dark <laughs> or I mean not that not that this book isn't meaningful. It's incredibly meaningful, but I think some of the themes and the the things that it kind of forces you to think about aren't as, I don't know, intimidating as some of the other stuff that we had to read in high school and I appreciated yep. that for sure. 
Well, it, well, it's funny. I mean, get just uh, th- theoretically get rid of the entire racial dynamic of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. This is a story about a little kid growing up and trying to figure out what the hell is going on in the world. Now, layer in that racial dynamic, which is the part of the story that most, you know, school courses will focus on. And you're talking about one important theme to focus on in a story that offers plenty of other themes that are easy to deal with. So, like, you can kind of, in a class, I think as a teacher, balance the important lessons you can be talking to your students about and the important history you can be talking about with stories about a kid trying to connect with his father who's no good. So I think I think it's it's enough of a balance that allows you to learn or just read for pleasure in a way that you can get a lot out of it without being sort of weighed down by any one thing. So I think I think that's probably what distinguishes it. It's not I don't think that Huckleberry Finn was a like a I'm trying to think of what the term is for it is, but like a cause novel. I don't think it was written for something. Yeah. It's 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 like a, it's written to be a good story, and in the course of telling a good story, imparts a lot of wisdom and points out a lot of flaws in American society. So I think there's a big difference. I think a lot of times teachers will assign like important novels or novels about something, and they don't end up having subplots that are worth reading. This is this is a novel that that is sort of the themes are secondary to just the good story. Yeah, and I think a, a reason that a lot of people consider this to be a classic and one you need to read is, I don't know, you, you would know about this more than I would, but th- I feel like this is one of the first, or among the most famous American stories, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's That's an interesting question. It's a loaded question, because you run into a lot of different schools of thought. But just think about it in this sense. Think about books that a lot of Americans have read and a lot of Americans have taken something from. This is on that list. I mean, there's other books that we'll mention a little bit later that I love, that you love, that a lot of people love, but that, you know, haven't really found their way to a lot of Americans' hearts. This is one that I think a lot of people have read and taken something from. So if that's if that's your main, you know, criterion for great American novel, it's got to be on the list, right? I would think so. Yeah, we, damn. We All just right. did Huckleberry Finn at number nine. So I know buckle it's your seatbelts. It's a loaded list. Uh, all right, so number eight is one that will probably shock a lot of people because it just sounds so bad, <laughs> but it's actually really good. Uh, eight is Crime and Punishment, published in 1866 by Dostoevsky. So my introduction to Dostoevsky was reading Notes from the Underground in college uh, during a class about romanticism. And I was blown away by how enjoyable that read was. It's basically just about a scumbag. <laughs> and it is. It's basically a story about a scumbag. A and shit. yeah, and it has a lot of thoughts about like society and being a part of, in, you know, existing in society. And I was just really thrown off by how accessible it was and how enjoyable this Russian translated into English was. So I kind of had that in my back pocket and then listened to Crime and Punishment on audiobook maybe about a year ago, I'd say. It's about a guy named Raskolnikov. Gesundheit. Yes, who's also a dirtbag. <laughs> He's just like a good-for-nothing 20-something 
who's only can't have two coppers to rub together, just like everybody in Russia at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Worth noting for context, people were not super happy in this story. No. And he decides he's going to kill somebody. Oh, fuck. And, and he ends up killing this old woman. And he, wa- I forget, he wants to steal something from her. I don't know. He kills her. And then for the next many hundred pages, freaks out about it. As one does. As one does. He's worried he's going to get caught. He's sort of worried about the consequences morally. He's a little more worried about getting caught. Yeah. Okay. This sounds heavy and kind of long and boring and whatever. However, it's portrayal of his inner monologue, it's portrayal of his experience of anxiety and emotional anguish is extremely relatable. Not so much, hopefully, in the violent piece, but in the way he thinks about something that he's done, it's just, it was really shocking in how psychologically honest it was, which I don't think was something that was done very often in novels at this time was to really, really probe into what this one character is thinking for this length of a story. And a lot of people hated it when it came out because they didn't understand it. They're like, what the hell's happening? Why am I reading about this psycho's thoughts for 400 pages? Fast forward, we have Twitter where all we do is read psycho's thoughts in 280 characters at a time forever that's what we do we're interested in what people are thinking people at this time were not quite as interested in what people are thinking they were a little more interested in plot this was pre you know the popularization of freud and young and people weren't that interested in what was going on in people's heads at least not in reading it so it's a little bit out of its time it's definitely before its time so it's a it's it can be a slog plot wise name wise that's for damn sure but once you get the hang of it it was really, really refreshing to read uh, a book written at this time that feels like it resonates emotionally. That's really interesting. I want, like, because nowadays, especially in TV, I think, and movies, like, the character study and, like, the the deep dive into a character's yep. psyche and motivations is, like, without that, you're kind of fucked. Like, you need that. Yep. And so to, to, like, trace that, the roots of that back to this kind of novel is is pretty interesting. I've not I've, I've not read this one. Yeah. It sounds like the kind of thing that you would read and be like, "Ooh, this this is a kind of a slog." And then at the end of it, and, but like maybe like halfway or 3 quarters through, you're like, "Oh fuck, like this is cool." You know how books like have different points at mm-hmm. which they kind of grab you and then like nail you to your yeah. chair. This feels like that would happen kind of late in the novel? Is that a fair characterization? Yes and no. Yes, in that it's that type. But the no is that it happened earlier than I expected. Mm. That I was yeah. more into it earlier than I thought. But I, but it's worth noting, I bought this audiobook. I think I said I read or listened to it a year ago. Mm-hmm. I bought it like three. And I listened to the first, excuse me, maybe hour. And was like, boo boy. <laughs> and just couldn't do it. Oh. Came back to it for, I don't know why. Maybe I had, didn't have Wi-Fi or something. I don't know. Came back to it a, a ways later and just something clicked. Hmm. It just worked for me and I, I got into it. Sometimes it takes that. Sometimes you have to just, you know, stall out once before it. That happened to me with Harry Potter. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. A lot of people it happened to with Harry Potter. This is, this is Harry Potter. Okay, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll defer to your 
You're, you know Harry Potter very well. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. All of the people talking on this podcast now, I'm the only one to have read both Harry Potter and Crime and Punishment. So Harry Potter, those crime must be punished. <laughs> that would be the that would be the the mashup. Yes, yes, it would. All right. Speaking of mashups, I love good music. Do you love good music? Of course I do. I'm, what are you, are you kidding me? Well, I think we should now go to honorable mentions. Which is probably a perfect time for some good music, wouldn't you say, Kyle? I would not, Mike, because we typically play music in front of our not top three segment. And usually we do honorable mentions after. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Lord. You were, it's okay. You were looking forward to the music. Oh, I'm so excited okay. about the music. You gotta, well, you gotta feel the grounder before you can throw over to first, Mike. That's true. You gotta, I gotta get the wooden glove back on. If that's <laughs> what it is. Cue not top three music. <laughs> Hey, Kevin, thanks for that great Not Top 3 music. That was awesome. That was stanky. Thanks, Kev. That was stanky. Thanks for those stanky beats. All right, I'm going <laughs> to hit three Not Tops uh, that I really didn't like. Boom. So I, this is no particular order. I'll Well, I'll go order. Number three, uh, Pride and Prejudice, 1813. Not a fan. No? Didn't like it. No, uh, I'm not anti-Jane Austen. Sure. I just didn't like it. I, there's really not a whole lot to say here, except that I think, I think it, it just didn't resonate. Like the relationships didn't resonate with me. I like the idea of a novel about relationships, like almost purely about various relationships and how they shake out, like daughter to father, daughter to, you know, potential husbands, daughter to other daughter. Like I, I think that the relationships that are set up in this story are interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think Jane Austen does that well in other stories. I've just never really gotten the pride and prejudice thing. A lot of people would, would want to be buried with this one. And eh, I don't know. Wasn't for me. I didn't find it very readable. Fair enough. Have you seen pride and prejudice in zombies? No, but that looked like a bit of an easier view <laughs> uh, than, than Pride and Prejudice. I, I've not encountered either in my content-consuming uh, experience, yeah. so I can't speak to it. But I've, I hear this one bantied about, and I just, I don't know, it was never like a super high priority for me, obviously, because I never read it. Yeah. Well, fear not. Friends of Jane Austen, we will be talking about her a little bit later. I figured we um, might. Because she is a wonderful author. Yeah. I just think in her collection, I'm confused why Pride and Prejudice is one that people talk about so glowingly. Hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Number two on the not top three is Candide by Voltaire. Ah, Voltaire. A- <laughs> yes, Voltaire Hare. I'd rather talk about Voltaire. <laughs> Yeah, Candide is one that a lot of people were tortured with in high school. I just, oh lord, did you have to read this? I did not. Goodness gracious, I didn't even look up a summary because I didn't care to remember what it was about. But it's about this guy who does some stuff, and it's so bad. That's it. That's the only. That's the only summary I plan to offer here. Don't read Candide. It's, a- it's dumb. It says it's a French satire. That's it. It is a satire. 1759. Okay, so here's the thing. Satire is great when it's satire of stuff that is universal 
and like doesn't age. So there's there's actually there's there's one that I had to read called The Rape of the Lock. And it's about this guy who cuts a lock of hair off of a woman. Okay. And it's about basically how women are mistreated in society. And about how people end up forming battle lines over who was right and who was wrong in this sort of scenario. Sound like stuff that's happening in today's society? Yes. Yes. That is a satire that has aged well because it was satirizing things that kind of are universal. They're not going to change. That's the same with Huck Finn. Huck Finn, Huck Finn is a satire that has aged well because it's about race and it's about youth and it's about nation building. Like those are things that don't change. They're interesting over time. So is this indeed? This is just Voltaire bitching about stuff that is extremely local to 1759 France. That's my recollection. <laughs> I think there's some stuff about, like, the aristocracy generally. Oh, but it was stand France in this time. <laughs> yeah, but it felt pretty specific and just really didn't translate. <laughs> I think it was probably a good supplementary text to learning about the time, but woof. Are you sure that food. you didn't get the French version, and that's why it didn't translate very well? Oh, boy. Lord, lordy, lordy. All right, that's going to bring us to number one. <laughs> just a truly truly awful read uh the scarlet letter by Uh, nathaniel hawthorne published in 1850 not to be confused with the scarlet pimpernel no (laughs) (laughs) Uh, shouts to our black catter friends yeah the scarlet letter is terrible really i this is one that i've heard a lot of people talk about great american novel and it's so wonderful and blah 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 go see easy a easy a is fantastic Easy A is fantastic. And yes, the themes, they're still interesting. Women being painted with a scarlet letter for things that they do in their personal lives. Happened then, happens now. Interesting then, interesting now. Yes, yes, yes. Check, check, check. However, good God, I challenge you to read more than 10 pages of this consecutively without falling asleep. It's so boring. Oh, the, oh it's so freaking boring. Reverend Dimsdale, give me a break. Owner of it's the Dimsdale so Dimmodome? It is the owner of the Dimsdale <laughs> Dimmodome. <laughs> Want to try a blubber nugget? Like, it's, really... it's, it's, yeah, that's the only thing that I remember enjoying from reading this was the Dimsdale piece. It's so bad. Don't read it ever. Scarlet Letter sucks. And it's these three novels, I think, are a big reason why high school students hate literature because they're mm. forced to read them. And yes, I'm going to apologize in advance to dear friend of the pod, Claire, who loves Jane Austen. And I'm guessing she loves Pride and Prejudice. Probably. But I still think in the context of a high school English class, I don't consider these very readable books. And I think they've turned a lot of young people off from reading quote unquote classics. I hope we didn't just alienate uh, a guest, but I hear you. I actually have not read The Scarlet Letter. Surprisingly, this was not on my high school curriculum. I feel like everyone had to read this. You are lucky. It's terrible. Terrible stuff. I have two that I would put on this list, but I'm a little afraid that they might be on your list. Why don't we wait and you give me some not tops at the end? I'm just going to do it. I'd be shocked if these were on your list. Okay. I hope. (laughs) I really hope. (laughs) Did you ever read Heart of Darkness? <laughs> so <laughs> I considered I considered putting a different 
uh, Conrad novel on the top. Yeah. But it fell just outside of the bounds. Yes, I have read Heart of Darkness. I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. I, okay, disclaimer, I didn't finish it. Yep. I, so, in high school, I had heard a lot about it from someone else, and was like, that sounds like something I would be into. Like, it sounds like a cool kind of dark, and I just, I also just kind of wanted the prestige of having read Heart of Darkness. So I tried to read Certainly it. Certainly a reasonable motivation. Yeah, so I tried to read it and was like, I'm going to get into this. This sounds like badass and cool, and it really, really was not based on my recollection. I got maybe a third into it. Yeah. So what's, so I agree. So what's interesting about Heart of Darkness is it's a Conrad novel, as I mentioned, and I've read three of his. So I've read Heart of Darkness, Lord Jim, and The Secret Agent. The Secret Agent and Lord Jim feel very modern Mm -hmm. in their construction, in the things that they talk about, and are really enjoyable. Heart of Darkness did not feel that way. It did not feel modern at all. And it's really weird because that was written in 1899 and Lord Jim was written in 1900. Like, Mm. right one after the other. And they just feel like they were written by two different authors. Weird. So, I enjoyed Heart of Darkness in a sense. I thought it was really interesting. But it's weird to read side by side with a couple of other his novels that are really actually enjoyable today. Like, it's it's just weird. Hmm. It's kind of hard to square one with the other. All right. The other one I had, and I want to put one million disclaimers on this. <laughs> Before every female listener of this podcast turns it off immediately after I announce the title, hear me out. Did you ever read The Awakening? No. Okay, so... This is a novel all about female empowerment and a woman kind of awakening to realize her full potential and understanding that she don't need no man. Which, so you're a misogynist. Yes. So I am completely in support of the themes of this novel. I, I think it's actually a very well-written book because mm-hmm. it forced a high school, like freshman high school me to really think deeply about those themes and appreciate them. So I I think it's a great book and there's a reason it's considered a classic. All of that being said, <laughs> it's really hard to read. It's just it's about a woman who lives in a, like turn of the century or, or right at the end of the 19th century. She lives in like Baton Rouge or like New Orleans somewhere in Louisiana and she lives like in a manor with her husband. She has kids and she just like has no interest at all in her kids, it seems, or her husband, and like is kind of trying to find meaning in her life, and it just takes a long time to get to <laughs> anything. It was a real slog, and I hated reading it. When I was done with it, took away some great things to think about uh, going forward in my life, but not really a page turner. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah, that's, I think that sounds a little bit like my experience of Heart of Darkness. It's, it's at the end, you're like, oh, okay, that was interesting. But during it was not enjoyable. And this podcast is about readable yes, old novels. Yes. That's why I, I brought it up. Great and readable are not the same thing. I, I sort of, I, you have to balance the two because there are some readable greats, mm-hmm. but readability is very important. For sure. 
Let's move on to oh, some sh- more great readable books. All right, number seven. So I also want to note the only research I did for this one was for knots because I wanted to see what things people hated. Mm. And interestingly, one of my tops, number seven, showed up on a lot of people's hate list. Huh. And this was actually the novel that inspired this list. It's Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. So I listened to this very recently. It was free, I think, on Audible. Nice. Published in 1847. Okay. It is about a orphan boy named Heathcliff who is adopted by this family he falls in love with his adoptive sister it's not it's not weird no. it's just you know well, he it is he kind of it is sure <laughs> I mean, he lives with the family and and so she ends up marrying a kid from like across the you know countryside who's his rival and it sets everybody in this story on a path man oh man do they go on a path because of this uh have you have you read it oh yeah i read it in high school Okay, so it is, it is, (laughs) nothing happens, exactly, but it's really incredibly dark and beautiful in the way it's written. It's really intensely written. It is written in dialect in a lot of places, which makes it a little bit difficult to read. Yeah. (laughs) Because I did, I did read parts of it after listening to it, and it's a little bit, it's a little bit tough to understand at times, but the, a little bit like Crime and Punishment, it delves into the psychology of a character with a depth that is very rare for this time. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very, very kind of dark and mysterious and gothic, uh, even though nothing that people would associate with gothic literature nowadays occurs. I loved it. I remember not liking it when I picked it up, and then I would compare my experience with Wuthering Heights with my experience with The Bachelor, because I started it and had very (laughs) extremely low expectations, and then, like, very quickly was like, oh my god, I have to know how this ends. And I actually think it's a relevant comparison, because to me, it actually kind of read like, like The Bachelor, like, very, kind of like a, like a love triangle type, yeah, almost like high school, high school age kind of like drama, but like, you know, 200 years ago. Yeah. Which I thought was entertaining. I actually really liked this book in high school. I'm glad we're on the same page. Did you happen to see the 2009 movie, Wuthering Heights? No, but I heard it was really good. We watched it. This was an AP lit, I want to say. We watched it. Do you know who it stars as a young Heathcliff? Who? It's uh, a guy you might have heard of named Tom Hardy. Oh, shit. See, he's... Are you, are you actually, this is for real? I'm serious. Okay, cause I have not seen it. I'm aware of the existence of this film, didn't know he was in it. He was actually the person I was picturing as I was reading this. It, this is not a joke. I actually cast him in the movie in my mind because he's such a perfect Heathcliff. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize, I don't think at the time that it was him, but I realized it later and was like, oh my fucking god, this is incredible. Wow. Yeah. It, I think the general perception, I don't think anyone read this book in my class, maybe besides yeah. me and a few other people. So I don't know what the reaction, the genuine reaction was, but my impression based on the way that it was taught was like, yes, I know this sucks, but come on, let's talk about it. And I was like, no, I kind of liked this. It's funny because this is another one that 
contemporary audiences really hated, <laughs> like really hated this book because they're they were just wondering why. Yeah, they're like these people are assholes. Yes, I'm reading about this for a long time, and they're doing some bad shit, and I don't get why. But also, nothing's happening. Yeah. All, in some sense, valid complaints, but what's really interesting is, a little bit like Crime and Punishment, how legitimately the psychology holds up. Like, people are confused why Heathcliff would act the way he did, you know, so many years after, and I understand why they were confused, because of kind of the way people treated each other at the time. Yeah. And the way, like, the stiff upper lip and stoicism were embraced. But when you think about how actual people react to actual slights, people can really dig in and hold a grudge for a really long time. That seems really illogical. Um, so I think that it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I don't know if I would recommend this as, like, casual reading for someone that's looking for something to read today, but... Yeah. It's not... It's not something that you should completely ignore if you ever have the chance. Yeah. Agreed. All right, so we're moving into, like, a really readable portion of this list. Uh, number six is one that I know that you love. I'd love if you would uh, talk to people through it. Published in 1844, The Count of Monte Cristo. Ah, uh, I knew this would be on here. <sighs> this is amongst my favorite books of all time. Mm -hmm. I read this in... My junior year, I read it in Australia. I brought it on the plane with me. This is, <laughs> it's an adventure book. Yep. At, at its core. So our, our hero, uh, Edmund Dantes, right? Is that his name? Mm -hmm. So yep. he <laughs> runs into a spate of bad luck. <laughs> Quite, that is, that is understatement <laughs> of the century. Uh, basically he, um, his best friend like completely fucks him and then ends up marrying his fiance and yes. he gets thrown into prison by this douchebag named Villafort. Yeah, sure does. He is very much in prison. Yep. And it's not too much of a spoiler to say that his ass escapes. His ass does escape very cleverly. It's a that is a I remember being thrilled with that escape scene. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, um and then he embarks on a a tale of revenge and vengeance posing as the Count of Monte Cristo. He basically like remakes himself into this like notorious Count um, and amasses enough uh, influence and money to kind of go about this, this act of vengeance. That's enough to get you started. This is, I, this is a really fun book to read. Um, and there yeah. are some heavy themes about, vengeance and revenge and playing god and all of that stuff but it's also just a, a really gripping kind of fun ride of a an adventure novel this yeah. if you have seen um the revenant the revenant is kind of a not a remake but it follows the t this tale pretty closely the movie is actually pretty good it stars jim kazeebel yeah uh and jesus yep and uh, a significant portion of the movie is actually shot in Valletta, which is the capital of Malta, which is one of the reasons that I love it so much. I I can't say enough about this book. I'd actually genuinely recommend it for people that are looking for a fun adventure book to read. I can't believe it's at number six, but yeah, you, you picked a book that is in the definitely top 10 of my personal favorite books of all time. Yeah, you said it. You said it well. This is... It's a movie because it's a movie. Like, it's written like a modern movie script, and it works really well on screen. It's a great book for anybody. All right, number five. We're coming back to 
our dear friend Jane Austen. Uh, number five is one that I actually listened to recently and that had featured some great voice talent, including Emma Thompson and Joanne Froggett, who plays, um, oh boy, Anna, Anna Bates from uh, Downton Abbey. So it was great recording. Uh, this is Emma. So this is published 1815. It's the story of Emma Woodhouse. And basically, Jane Austen, I, I read this when I was doing a little bit of research, said that she wrote Emma because she wanted to create a protagonist that only she could love. And I, and so here's what's interesting. I think that in doing so, she did exactly what makes something a modern novel, which is a flawed anti-hero who we identify with. So it's funny because a character that only she could like, well, I really liked Emma because I see myself in Emma. So I don't know what that says about me. I, it's interesting you said <laughs> that. It reminds me of. Allegis's reading of Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. Because Allegis found herself in the middle of that book <laughs> relating very strongly to a character that you're like you're meant to feel like, oh shit, that's not good. But that was definitely Gillian or Gillian, not sure how you say it, her intention. You know what I mean? So like you're yeah. relating to a character that you think is being written intentionally to be shitty, and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's, that's, so it's funny because Emma, I'm, I I think, I'm not sure if I had that context going in, but you see her flaws. She wants to set everybody up. She's too busy in other people's business, blah, 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 blah. All of these flaws that I think Jane Austen would have seen in women at her time. But Emma is also incredibly independent, insanely smart. She's very kind hearted. She's a little bit self-centered, but like it's the self, right? The self-centered piece of her personality is just a piece of her personality. She's a really compelling character. Her world is is very small, and she's certainly at the center of it. But she has a view of the world that's that's bigger than just that. So I think Emma is I, my favorite Jane Austen character, and I think what elevates this above like the musings of country life in England in the eighteen hundreds. This is about kind of what it is to be a good person and how you ought to be relating to other people and what you're supposed to do when you figure out your own flaws. Like, what an interesting question. Like, we all have issues. We all have flaws. And once you know what they are, is that going to handicap you or is that something that you just, you know, you kind of accept and you learn to deal with it? And I think Emma is a great novel dealing with all of those themes. And also just really funny and really enjoyable and really snappily written it was great on my list i have not read this one either but i love when you do these episodes and by that i mean i loved when you did the gone girl one because it gave me a a list of 10 books (laughs) i needed to read and now i've got at least three or four here that i need to get to so this is great yeah this is fun it gives me joy because this is this is what i like to do yes you should see the you should see the look on mike's face uh listeners it's very happy all right, number four is one that will not be added to your list because you have most certainly read it. Number four, published in 1887, the first appearance of our dear friend Sherlock Holmes in A Study in Scarlet. <laughs> so A Study in Scarlet is the longest, I believe, uh, story featuring Holmes, one of just a few sort of novella slash novel length stories. And interestingly, 
the first that I read. I, it's kind of surprising, but like huh. actually the first that I read, I bought a compilation from Barnes and Noble. I'm trying to remember when, but I remember where. I remember finishing it in the parking lot, going to dinner with my parents and my aunt and uncle. I just like have such a vivid memory of it. I remember the the edition that I had. It's really not a good home story as far as home stories go because it's this weird rambling story involving the Church of Latter-day Saints. As yeah. pointed out by my professor teaching my mystery fiction class freshman year of college, you can't solve it, which is interesting. A major flaw of a detective story and one that is not repeated very often in the genre these days. Like people recognize that that's really unfair unless they're writing some novel about how existentially unknowable the world is, which that happens. Sure. Like there's some, there's some mystery stories where it's a true black box on purpose. This was, this was not on purpose. This is just sort of like not, not, it was at a time when the, the genre was young. Yeah. I remember people had that same criticism of true detective season one, which didn't bother me as much but it is a little frustrating for sure but but you still did see the person who did the like, thing yeah we don't need to but but you did like it's it's interesting if you think about it really think about it the way detective stories deal with knowing or not knowing is very interesting and has changed over time so this was at the dawn of it there's another great one um it's another edgar Allan poe story it's a dupin story where you really could never have figured out who did what happened and it feels like such a cheat but that was sort of how it started this convention that you have to at least offer the reader an option an opportunity to solve it didn't exist then it was everything like you read agatha christie and other golden age of mystery you know novels and there are always clues and you could always solve it in a lot of cases it's really easy to solve and then there was hard-boiled stories where there is no solution and the mystery itself is a MacGuffin and it's really not about anything. And then now it's all self-conscious and asking whether there's ever a solution. Should we have a solution? We give you the solution at the beginning. Like how you deal with whether you offer the solution is like the big question. The new <laughs> thing this- is... Yeah. Sorry. The, the, the new thing is like, they give you a answer and then they're like, but guess what? This doesn't mean shit. (laughs) Right. So So it's, it's like, it's interesting how that has evolved. The point of all that is to say study in Scarlet is a very unformed young version of Sherlock Holmes, but it's really the only pre 1900 novel length one. So I needed to pick it and it is still wonderful. It introduces us to Holmes. It introduces us to Watson. It's, magnificent in the pantheon of sherlock holmes it's not the best but it's still wonderful well and it's been adapted incredibly a couple of different times if you watch the show the show sherlock you'll recognize a play on the title a case in pink which is an incredible modern adaptation of this and for christmas you got me a little graphic novel called a study in emerald which Mm -hmm. is a mashup of sherlock holmes universe which with the Lovecraftian universe, which was a utter delight to read and has a incredibly satisfying twist on the original story that I can't wait for you to read. So Nor can I. Even if you have if you have not read A Study in Scarlet, first of all you should. But yes. if you don't want to read that, you can read a pretty quick novelette 
graphic novel, A Study in Emerald, or if you want to watch it, go watch A Case in Pink. You'll get what we're talking about. Yeah, can I, I want to close with two thoughts on Sherlock Holmes more broadly. Mm-hmm. One is, please, 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 if you've never read it, know that this is ridiculously modern. Like, it feels like it could have been written yesterday. Yeah. It's crazy how relevant and modern and fresh these stories feel. Like, to a degree that is very shocking. It's it's stunning. I would say the same is true of most of his shorter ones. And I think it's, yes. it's, a, it's a little longer. It might not qualify as a novel, but The Hound of the Baskervilles is... It's another one. Post-1900 was the problem Ah. with that one. But yes, that is a longer one. The other thing I want to note, which you touched on there about the brevity of these stories, great for pooping, great right before bed. You can read a lot of them. It's 10 to 15 pages. Buy the anthology and just stick it in your shitter, and it's the perfect way to to while away a, a half hour in the bathroom. Damn straight. All right, that brings us to... Some honorable mentions. I'm just going to bust through these because these, this has taken a while. Yeah. Um, my honorable mentions are all ones that fall sort of outside of the time frame, but that kind of feel similar. Okay. Uh, Lord Jim, which is the, um, Conrad novel I mentioned earlier. Sure. It follows a guy who abandons ship and is basically cast out from society for having abandoned ship and not saving people in a, well. um, maritime disaster it's really interesting how sort of sympathetically it considers that case Hmm. the maltese falcon (laughs) and many other hard-boiled detective novels of the time just dark and brooding in a way that feels very relatable to today's you know literary universe all quiet on the western front this is one that i think a lot of people really didn't like i loved it this is one of my dad's favorites and he recommended it to me it's about the experience of german soldiers during world war one the scene that got me was all the guys talking while pooping in these sort of outdoor latrines and just it felt very human and i think not a not the kind of realism that was often focused on uh war at that before then like people usually talked about the glory of war this was about the grit and it was really well done brave new world i read that one very recently very weird yeah very very weird but if you've read the hunger games you read brave new world because that and many other logan's run like all of these dystopian novels and movies are owe a lot to brave new world Great Gatsby, nothing else needs to be said about that one. Feels yeah. a little too modern and is a little bit late for my cutoff, but don't sleep on that one. Nope. Uh, and then two that I haven't read but that I've heard work very well today, uh, Don Quixote, 1605. Mm. A lot of people really love that one still. Haven't read it, but it's on my list. The other one is Tess of the D'Urbervilles. I don't know if you're supposed to say that more French, like D'Urbervilles. But my friend Shannon, who is one of the most brilliant people I know, either gave it to me a long time ago or recommended it to me because she said it reminded her of The Dark Knight. What? And yes, it has since come up in many <laughs> other contexts as being a, a old novel that holds up very well. Hmm. So one that I will be probably listening to before too long. Cool. Is that the end of your list? Or the animal mentions? That's- that's the end of the honorable mentions. I'm in a weird place because I've got four here that I think you would put on your list, but it's four. I'm wondering yeah. if I'm off on one of the years that wouldn't qualify it. All right. Well, you probably know the top three. Yeah. I would be willing to bet. 
but we'll see what that fourth one is. All right, number three, Dracula. Yep. <laughs> 1897, Bram Stoker. This one is about Jonathan Harker. Yeah. Who is a solicitor doing some legal work for this, you know, just regular old guy. Count Dracula, just just a guy. The Count. Just a Count. Uh, and he gets trapped in his house. Oh, Turns shit. out he's undead. Very much so. Uh, and this story is told in epistolary style and uses that form to great effect to build a lot of suspense. Even though I and we all know that this is a story about a vampire, the dread that slowly builds as the characters start figuring out what's happening is very effective. Even to a modern reader. This is a stunningly deep and well-written book given what everybody thinks about when they think about I want to suck your blood like it's a shockingly good story I it's funny you say this because well okay first of all I agree with you a thousand percent I I listened to this book and I I made it was so scary like (laughs) it's terrifying and like you're right you have to kind of put yourself in um a place where you remember like there wasn't all this vampire lore when this was written. So, like, yeah. the things that he's describing, try to keep in, in the back of your head, like, this is all new. And, like, his language is extremely descriptive in the letters, and you can kind of read between the lines, though. Like, it's, you can kind of feel, like you said, feel this thing kind of building. I recommended Dracula to dear friend of the pod, Quinn. And he got mad at me because he was like, that was super boring. He found it to be boring. What? I know. I, I was oh my goodness! I was surprised by it. I I was gripped. I will say there are parts that get a little bit drawn out, but overall, very scary, very exhilarating. Definitely one I'd recommend. Yeah, Dracula. All right, number two is one that a lot of people were tortured with by reading in high school. Because they should not have been reading it probably in high school, and if they were going to read it, they should have spent. A very, very long time reading it because it's long. Yep. And I will shortly pitch that you shouldn't read the whole thing. You should read parts of it. Yep. Because that's a good way to do it. Yeah. Unless you want to get fucked by the long dick of the whale. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Number two is Moby Dick (laughs) by our dear friend Hermie Mel. Published in 1851, the most famous opening lines in all of literature, Call Me Ishmael. Yeah. Uh, it's dude Ishmael recounts his time with Captain Ahab as Captain Ahab hunts for the white whale that Dunn took his leg. So it's about something. I, I'm not sure what, and I'm not sure Nobody anybody knows. knows what, but it's shockingly funny and filthy, like oh, yes. disgusting, like dirty jokes left and right. Yep. It talks a lot about community it it offers a lot of thoughts about the way people interact with each other it gives you a lot about how whales uh swim together in the ocean basically moby dick is just an explosion of thoughts that occurs over like depending on your edition like five six hundred pages and it's really weird and it's hard to classify but it's an experience that I think everybody should try to have at some point. I think it's okay if you just read the part about how good that bisque was at that inn, or you read about falling into a whale carcass, 
or you read about like the sperm oil or you read about you know being discovered by a boat full of people after you've gone overboard like there's a lot of things to this and when you take them all together it's overwhelming and confusing but if you start building up sort of section by section you realize that the section you read was really funny and had something to say it's just hard when you take it all together it kind of reminds me of like like think about four years of high school yeah as you were going through them it's like jesus christ this is staying forever and like it's a lot of kind of crud but when you think back on it you kind of only remember the really good stuff or the really yep. bad stuff and at moby dick kind of reads that way to me like it's it's really like you're just getting every detail of a certain stretch and like the fact that it's so exhaustive kind of lets you appreciate the highs and the lows in that context that makes sense the only problem with that approach is that by definition you kind of have to slog through a very long kind of but like you like look back on it almost (laughs) like they're great memories like after you've done after you're done reading it like i probably my favorite part of the book is when ish and uh queequeg meet up because i think ish and queequeg are like (laughs) like one of the best buddy combos ever Yes. A hilarious buddy comedy. Insanely. Like, there's a scene where they wake up in a inn together and they're, like, spooning. And, like, that, that. They pro, and, and, like, you, depending on how you read it, like, some people are like, oh, they just, they got down. They just boned. They may have. Some people, some people are like, that was just something that Herman Melville thought was funny. We don't know, but, like. Like, no idea. It's just, like, a really funny thing to, like, think back on at the end of the book. And it reads it's so and there's but like between that and when they get on the fucking boat there's all this weird stuff in a church like in the first like hundred pages yeah the church that looks like a ship and it's like it's exhausting you're like you're like trying to keep all the pieces together so you can like complete this large analogy in your head and it's like this doesn't fucking fit but then if you just think about it like oh my god queequeg and ish these guys like it's so worthwhile of an experience if you can put in the time. And I do think that you can read it in bits and enjoy those things individually. But reading it as a whole definitely adds to it. It's just a lot to do. Yes. And it's really interesting. A lot of books that have been around for long enough and been well-regarded enough to attract critical attention go through different readings where people will sort of read different parts yeah. of it for different meanings. I have a hard time thinking there's a, a novel that has gone through as many iterations in so short a time as Moby Dick. Cause it's only been around for like 150 years. Yeah. And people have taken a lot of different things from it at a lot of different times and like really read certain things about it to mean different things. Like the white whale was the thing for a long time. It's like, what is the white whale? Is it the meaninglessness of human existence? Is it God? Is it self? Like, what the hell is the white whale? That was everybody's preoccupation for a very long time. Nobody gives a shit about the white whale anymore. People now just consider the white whale a cipher. Like, that's actually how it's referred to for the most part. It's a cipher. There's nothing there. It just is. Now people talk about the politics of these people existing on the ship. And the whether Melville was actually saying that a ship is a flat racial and political paradise where everybody coexists peacefully together... Or was he actually critiquing the fantasy that that's the way it is? And that, in fact, 
it's the Euro- it's seriously that it's the Europeans on the ship who attain the highest status. They're not the ones harpooning the whales. They're enjoying themselves. Like, which is it? That's what people are reading now. Those are really interesting, fun topics to tackle. But I think they're a lot more fun to let them wash over you as you read this story for the humor and the weirdness and like the the strangeness of this experience of reading it. Like you said, it's sort of that funny little badge of honor. It's like after coming back from football camp or whatever, and everybody's like, oh, man, we made it. And, you know, like, it wasn't that bad, but you have this memory and you exaggerate how ridiculous the bad times were, but you also really remember the good times. This is a really worthwhile literary experience, and you can take from it whatever the hell you want. That's what I like about it. It's kind of your yeah. thing, however yeah, you Yeah, to choose your own adventure. Yeah. Except with a lot of sperm, no matter which adventure you choose. Yes, it's the bandersnatch of the 19th century. Yes, exactly. It's probably the best way to describe it. What's number one? Number one is one of my all-time favorite stories, like maybe top five or ten for me, uh, Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus by our dear friend uh, Mary Shelley, published in 1818. I don't think people really need to know too much about the story. The cool thing is what a lot of people wouldn't know is how the story opens, which is with Dr. Frankenstein being discovered at the North Pole by this guy, Captain Walton. And they just find him. And they're like, hey, what the hell happened to you? (laughs) And then (laughs) it's like, you, get in the boat. You're cold. And then they just recount, Dr. Frankenstein recounts what happened, which is, of course, that he decided he could bring life into the world. He created this monster, and it turned out the monster wanted a little bit more meaning than Dr. Frankenstein could offer him, and that was a problem. Uh, <laughs> this story is incredibly atmospheric, I think is a good term for it. It's gothic. It's generally classified as like a romantic-slash-gothic novel. But it's just the atmosphere it creates is is... It's very thick, uh, very modern in that sense. The story is very universal. The question of who gets to create, what is the responsibility of the creator? What's the responsibility of the created? These are pretty universal questions, but they're posed in a very cool, interesting, funky way that is like biblical in its scope, but much more novelistic in its like layout. Some of the most affecting scenes that I've ever read in literature. I mean, I think I've probably mentioned it before on the podcast. I know we've talked about it. The scene where the monster is under the floorboards. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, and is watching this family and wishing he could be a part of it is just one of my favorite bits of writing ever. It's a really beautiful novel. It's much a lot like Dracula. It's been, I think people have gotten a little confused because of some modern interpretations. This is a very dark and very beautiful and very moving story and not just like a silly horror story. Frankenstein's monster has been changed in our modern yes. understanding significantly more than Dracula has. Because at the end yes. of the day, while there are subtleties to the Dracula story that make it you know, deeper than what we think of it as, at the end of the day, it's generally we have the right impression. Frankenstein's mm-hmm. monster is not a lumbering straight armed ghoul. No. And I don't want to go too far into it because this is a 
a novel that everyone should read <laughs> and experience for themselves, but it is a far, far more thoughtful assessment of what that would be like than any other interpretation of like Frankenstein's monster has been like, like this same story has been done thoughtfully, you know, ex machina. I mean, Westworld, anything like that is kind of based in this, this concept. But when you see Frankenstein's monster on a box of cereal or like on a TV show, it's definitely not what this book is about. No, no. So this is, this is just one of the most beautiful stories ever written. It's, Thrilling, sad, beautiful, and really readable. Yep. Like, really shockingly readable. Uh, Alright, so I'm gonna just run through three honorable mentions that I forgot to mention earlier <laughs> that are, like, real honorable mentions because they count. Uh, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. This is Edgar Allan Poe's only novel-length bit of literature. He was sort of, unfortunately, on the outside looking in because he wrote mostly short stories. Yeah. His stuff is incredibly good and incredibly readable, but this is his only novel. Published in 1838, guy who stows away on a ship and ends up on a very, very weird adventure involving cannibals and some weird looming figure who either means God or hell or a secret society in the center of the earth or something about race in America, very confusing, really good. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 1886. It's exactly the story that you think of, like the Jekyll and Hyde thing, but it's way darker than you think it is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, entirely darker than you think it is. That was not a guy who was afraid to make us hate the main character. Uh, and then another one, which I think... I think we've talked about how much we both love this one. It's 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. 20,000. Right? Did I say 10? Yeah. Sorry, 20. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 1872, Professor joins Captain Nemo on the Nautilus looking for a sea monster. And crazy, beautiful underwater adventure ensues. It's really weird and very cool and beautiful and just the kind of thing that inspired a lot of people to, you know, take on a career in science or underwater navigation. It's really awesome. Okay, I'm going to jump into my mentions then. So yeah. the very first book that you that I thought of when you told me about this was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I don't yeah. think it's an understatement to say that that book is like a huge part of the reason why I love to read and what started me. This is one of the, this is one of the first ever novels that I read and it captivated me in a way that I don't remember many other books doing. My dad gave me it. It was a big hardcover version. I just, I, I opened it and couldn't stop reading it until I was done. And it was the first experience I'd had with fantasy and science fiction and like literally changed my life. So that is a very special book to me and it is infinitely readable, like crazily charming and exhilarating and just wonderful. So that's one of my favorite books ever written. More Jules Verne. I got into a real yeah. Jules Verne kick after this book. So Around the World in 80 Days is one of my yeah, favorites ever. Insanely enjoyable and reminds one of one of your favorite films that I hope we get to talk about on a podcast sometime. We certainly will. More Jules Verne, a really cool one called From Earth <laughs> to the Moon, where way before any of this was ever being discussed, he wrote a book all about sending people to the moon, where 
they basically dug a huge hole and filled it with gunpowder and built like a capsule that was like a bullet, like a cannonball. And they built, they basically built like a cannon into the surface of the earth and launched this capsule out. They did all the math to figure out when it would collide with the moon. They shot it out. Don't want to spoil it, but people cite this as like one of the first accurate kind of attempts to do the math and science around what it would take to send a person or people to the moon. And his calculations are not that far off, which is pretty fucking amazing. And then the last one I love from him is Journey to the Center of the Earth. I, another amazing, incredible fantasy novel. So it, if you've never read anything from Jules Verne, read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but all of those are foundational building blocks on my reading career and my love of reading. So I can't say enough about them. One that I thought that you were going to have on here was A Tale of Two Cities. Is that one of your favorites? Yeah, so I I was trying to decide between that and Great Expectations. Yeah. And I decided that I think I think Great Expectations is a bit more readable. Yeah. I think Tale of Two Cities is in my recollection similar in length, maybe shorter, but features a lot more characters to keep track of. I would I ultimately think I like Great Expectations a little bit more. Okay. But there I didn't want to do two of yeah, the same author. That's fair. But that's but that's I think probably ten B if or Dickens B. Yeah. Okay. Treasure Island by uh, Robert Lewis Stevenson. Yep. That's yeah, a- he and Jules Verne really, really hold up. Really they do. And they even when you read those books, you're like, wow, there is so much that has taken from these. Yeah. One that I actually mentioned on the Gone Girl podcast, but I want to reiterate because it's cool. Turn of the Screw. Yeah. Really cool ghost story. It's uh, very scary. And I love it because... That holds up. Yeah. It's scary. And I love it because for all you losties out there, in the hatch, <laughs> they need to find a key. And Desmond, he, he hides it behind Turn of the Screw on the bookshelf. Which is really cool. That is all I had. I don't think we need to reorder this. I think you did a really good job with it. The only thing I would add to, or I don't think we should, but I would really, 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 really encourage people to read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. No, I think we should memorialize it. I think we should add 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in here. I think we should pull Wuthering Heights and drop it exactly in Wuthering Heights' spot. I love Wuthering Heights. I know you liked it too. I think for this list, the, that one I think rests a little bit too much on the surprise factor of how readable it is, but in absolute terms is is far less readable than a 20,000 leagues. I would agree with that. I, I'm happy with that placement for sure. Okay. In that case, I think you have done just an incredible job of giving all of us some things to add to our reading list. So thank you, Michael. This is I fucking love this. This is great. <laughs> this was a fun one. I think it's a good way for people to stack up their classics credentials without having to painstakingly read books that they're going to hate. This like, is that's that's not worth it. Reading is supposed to be fun and these books are all fun, I promise. This is such a great great idea. I think we should do another one soon with more modern classics like post like 20th century maybe i think that'd be fun so that's actually kind of what I, that's why i didn't want to get too deep into some of those ones because there's definitely some stuff that i think we can talk about that are like great novels that are actually also really good yeah okay all right give us this list 
All right. Number 10, Charles Dickens, Great Expectations. Number 9, Mark Twain, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Number 8, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Crime and Punishment. Number 7, Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Number six, The Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, why is my brain blanking on who wrote that right now? Kyle, who wrote that? That's a uh, dumbass. Yeah, Alexander Dumbass. Uh, number five, Jane Austen with Emma. Number four, our boy Sir Arthur Conan Doyle with A Study in Scarlet. Number three, Bram Stoker with Dracula. Number two, Hermie Mel with Moby Dick. And number one, the most readable old novel. Mary Shelley with Frankenstein. Beautiful, Mike. That was great. I can't wait to start reading some of these that I haven't checked off before. Yeah, I'm going to be doing some rereading. I think i got to get back into Dracula. It's worth mentioning that, as you heard before, our theme music and our not top three stanky beat, both composed by the incomparable Kevin MacLeod, our artwork as always was put together by Erin Sant. Do not forget to check out her stuff at Sant Design on Instagram. Damn straight. And if people are trying to find us, you can check us out on Twitter at Top10KM Instagram at Top10KM You can email us at Top10KM at gmail.com Remember all those things are spelled out. You can also check out our Facebook page, Top10KM or probably Top10 with Kyle and Mike, I believe. And if you're looking to find our podcast, as you already have, or you're looking for a new platform, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, wherever the hell you get your podcasts. I think that's about it, my man. That's it. I'll see you next week, buddy. All right. Adios. Peace. Alfred Molina is in Indiana Jones and gets fucking killed. Yeah. His ass gets killed. I was watching it the other night and man, he made it about six minutes into that movie. He's the, he's the, the heel that like takes the idol from Indy. And yep. then, and then he, the next time you see him, he's like on a spike. He sure is it's on a spike. Pretty gruesome. Definitely indicative of an interesting career arc from kind of like semi racist secondary heel. To very prominent, well-regarded thespian. It's been a, it's been a long road. And when you say well-regarded thespian, you're referring to Doc Ock in Spider-Man Two. But of course, yes, one of his great roles, and one of his best trench coats, probably his best trench coat, definitely his best goggles. Yeah, but not his best, most stressful scene because oh my god, that's the mo- that's Alex and I were so stressed out. Oh Jesus, that was awful. That's a very stressful scene. Go see Boogie Nights if you haven't. <laughs> crack! 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 <laughs> Shit. Jesus. Jesus. <sighs> All right. All right. <clears throat> All right. You all synced up?